Today's passage comes from Psalm 109. God of my praise, do not be silent, for wicked and deceitful mouths open against me. They speak against me with lying tongues. They surround me with hateful words and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I continue to pray. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my love. Set a wicked person over him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty, and let his prayer be counted as sin. Let his days be few. Let another take over his position. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children wander as beggars, searching for food afar from their demolished homes. Let a creditor seize all he has. Let strangers plunder what he has worked for. Let no one show him kindness, and let no one be gracious to his fatherless children. Let the line of his descendants be cut off. Let their name be blotted out in the next generation. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and do not let his mother's sin be blotted out. Let their sins always remain before the Lord, and let him remove all memory of them from the earth. For he did not think to show kindness, but pursued the suffering, needy, and brokenhearted in order to put them to death. He loved cursing, let it fall on him. He took no delight in blessing, let it be far from him. He wore cursing like his coat, let it enter his body like water and go into his bones like oil. Let it be like a robe he wraps around himself, like a belt he always wears. Let this be the Lord's payment to my accusers, to those who speak evil against me. But you, Lord, my Lord, deal kindly with me for your name's sake. Because your faithful love is good, rescue me. For I am suffering and needy. My heart is wounded within me. I fade away like a lengthening shadow. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak from fasting, and my body is emaciated. I have become an object of ridicule to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads in scorn. Help me, Lord, my God. Save me according to your faithful love, so they may know that this is your hand and that you, Lord, have done it. Though they curse, you will bless. When they rise up, they will be put to shame, but your servant will rejoice. My accusers will be clothed with a disgrace. They will wear their shame like a cloak. I will fervently thank the Lord with my mouth. I will praise him in the presence of many. For he stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who would condemn him. The word of the Lord. We're in a series on the Old Testament Psalms called uh, Anatomy of the Soul. It's language we just uh, we basically just ripped off from a biblical scholar who was writing in the 1500s who said this about the Psalms. He said, I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there, there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, 
In short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. So today, what we're going to do is we're actually going to put that idea to the test. Uh, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, even the parts that we are frightened by, the parts we'd prefer to skip over. We're this morning in an ancient poem that many of the readers of the Bible, especially in the last couple hundreds of years, uh, have called the most heated and the most upsetting and the most troublesome of all the 150 psalms. But trust me, if you stick with this poem, if you read it, if you hear it in context, if you listen to it in context, you'll be challenged, you'll be humbled, encouraged, but most of all, I think you'll be changed. Um, so I could this morning, I could take this, this psalm, this ancient poem, and we could go verse by verse uh, and just explain every line, but I'm not entirely sure that that would be the most helpful or the most effective. So instead, I think what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of, some of the larger issues that psalms like 109 present, and then we're going to see where Psalm 109 speaks to us directly. So let's jump in. And this morning, I've broken up uh, this, this message into four parts. So first, we're going to look at the reality, the reality of our anger. Uh, second, the reason for our anger. Third, the resources in our anger. And then fourth, the resolution to our anger. You know it's going to be an amazing sermon when you've got four points and they all begin with R. So I'm going to repeat that again. The reality of our anger, the reason for our anger the resources in our anger, and the resolution to our anger. Uh, so let's look at the reality of our anger. I'm a huge fan, as many of you know, of Marvel Studios. I'll watch anything that Marvel puts out. Uh, and in 2012, uh, there was the release, as many of you know, of, of the first Avengers movie. And, and in, that, in that film towards the end, there's this massive uh, serpent-like mechanical behemoth uh, ravaging New York City. And it's closing in on the weary, uh, battle-worn uh, team of superheroes. And it's at this point that their only hope lies hidden in the mild-mannered scientist named Dr. Bruce Banner, uh, who as, I mean, do I have to explain this? But uh, he morphs into this big, green, raging Hulk, right? Um, and it's right at this point that Captain America turns to, uh, to Bruce Banner and he says, Dr. Banner... I think now might be a good time for you to get angry. And then as Banner uh, as zooms in on his face, uh, Banner responds with this sort of wry smile, and he says, that's my secret, Cap. I'm always angry. I'm always angry. I love that line. Um, I'm wondering uh, how many of us here this morning can relate to Dr. Banner. I'm always angry. We're living in a culture of radical kind of political correctness. Your whole reputation and livelihood, uh, everything about your life can be destroyed in a manner of, of moments, of hours on platforms like Twitter for, for merely just stepping outside the lines of acceptable speech. And socially acceptable speech, Psalm 109, is not. Uh, the rhetoric of ancient poems like Psalm 109, this is some of the, the, the most heated in all of Scripture, 
Uh, they don't fare well in sort of the modern, western, uh, progressive, enlightened cultures like, like the ones that we live in in Orange County in 2019. At best, they're censored, but it's more likely that they're just classified as hate speech and sort of dismissively ignored. Um, but let me suggest that ignoring poems like this, ignoring parts of the Bible that, that speak to us in this way, doesn't make the reality of anger disappear. It doesn't make it go away. As Dr. Banner said, I am always angry. See, what the Psalms do is they give us the full gamut of human emotions. They take us into the sublime, to feelings of awe and joy, but they also help us explore the parts of our soul that we'd rather ignore. Despair and depression, anxiety, guilt and shame, and unadulterated rage. So wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be odd, wouldn't you find it strange if Christian spirituality, if the book that Christianity is based on, if right, wouldn't you find it odd if right at the moment where we most need something to speak into our anger and our troubles and our rage and our anxiety, it was, it was silent, it didn't speak to us at all? See, the irony is that in a cultural moment like the one that we live in, in which everyone is encouraged to be in touch with their feelings and share their feelings and communicate their feelings, many people find scripture passages like Psalm 109 objectionable for doing the exact same thing that we're encouraged to do. Yes, anger, feelings of vengeance are in Psalm 109 and in literally dozens of other psalms in the Old Testament. Uh, it's, it's actually fascinating. Uh, verses 6 through 19, which so he read for us, uh, and encompass sort of the, the troublesome parts of Psalm 109. It's in, interesting. Many scholars in approaching this text actually try to put those language, those sort of biblical ancient curses, in the mouth not of David the poet, but in the mouth of the accusers of David, which is odd to me, but it makes a lot of sense. What they're trying to do is distance these curses from um, righteous people and from sort of godly people and say, actually, actually, this is the bad people that are saying these parts. Um, there's a little ambiguity in the text, but I think it's, it's mostly clear, and as we'll see from other parts in Scripture, um, this is... What the psalmist, what the poet is doing here is calling down curses on his enemies. Um, that's just a little sidebar. The, this language, this rhetoric of anger and rage and fury uh, of people, of human beings like us in the Bible, is in the Bible because it's realistic. Because the Bible is not sugar-coated. There's anger in the Bible because there's anger here, in me, in you, and in our human community. So some Christians will spend tons of time trying to make theological sense of why poems like this are in the Bible, when the bigger theological problem, let me suggest to you today, is that anger is here in us, and that's why it's in the Bible. As Bruce Banner said, I'm always angry. So what's the reason? If that's the reality of, if, if the Bible is speaking to our reality, 
the reality of our anger, what is the reason for our anger? Everyone is angry. Everyone is angry. I can guarantee that. That's why a sermon like this is in somewhat, I'm speaking to all of you. I'm speaking to myself, all of us. We all feel anger. Yes, your anger may look different than mine. For some of us, anger is like a nuclear bomb. It's hot. It's explosive. It, it's, it incinerates. But for some of us, though, we engage not in a nuclear strike, but in a cold war. We quietly brood. We withdraw. We nurse a critical attitude and low-grade irritability. It may be hotter or colder, more aggressive or more passive, but it's there in all of us a lot of the time. So what is it? What is this thing? What is anger? As I was reading and reflecting on this, I came across a number of writers who, who described anger in this way. Let me see if this connects with you. Anger is a release of energy towards a perceived threat. Anger is a release of energy towards a perceived threat. It's kind of a destructive energy. And probably at this point, most of you who hear that are thinking, well, that, that's bad, right? Destructive energy, that's a, sort of a negative thing. But not so fast. Think of the psalm that we read at the very beginning of our service this morning, Psalm 2. Listen to its words again. Pay homage to the Son. Pay homage to the Son. That's, that's God's Son, Jesus. Or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion for his anger may ignite at any moment. Or listen to this from Psalm 7. God is an honest judge. He is angry with the wicked every day. Verses like this are not hard to find. They're not sort of tucked away in the corners of your Bible. They're all over the place. God gets angry. See, anger is a destructive energy that's released in defense of one thing and also released to attack something else. It's energy to destroy something that is perceived as wrong. Now, what I'm going to say might shock you. It might be the first time you're hearing this. But listen, this emotion, anger, it's actually built in. God created you with this capacity. Ain't the capacity to get angry, the capacity for outrage is built into your DNA. Even more, it's actually part of what it means to bear the image of God. Let me explain. In Genesis 1 and 2, the, be the beginning of the Bible, God creates a good world. And after creating the world, he makes humanity, male and female, in his image. He gives them the vocation, the, the task of, of bringing about flourishing human community on the earth and cultivating the world with good things. And since God is, uh, according to the Bible, a just God, since at his core he is the overflowing source of goodness and beauty and holiness and justice and truth, he creates us, he creates people with a sense of right and wrong, of good and evil, of justice and injustice. So all of us come wired with a sense of justice, a sense of right and wrong, and, and our anger is our capacity to get upset, to speak and act forcefully against problems, against wrong, against injustice. Here's the problem. 
The problem is that rather than use this God-given ability to obliterate evil, to get rid of injustice and corruption, humanity gave into evil, and so now that sense of right and wrong, that sense of justice is warped. And so our anger is often directed towards selfish ends and purposes. So anger is something that's basic and proper to being an image bearer of God. And let me suggest that this, just like the idea of lament, the idea that Christians need to be people who weep, that bring our sorrows to God, let me suggest that we need to recover this category. But more fundamentally, we need to recover its source. A God who gets angry. A God who expresses wrath. Fleming Rutledge is an Episcopal priest and the author of uh, one of the most important books um, in the last several years on the crucifixion of Jesus. And she, she writes in this book, she says, It makes many people queasy nowadays to talk about the wrath of God. But there can be no turning away from this prominent biblical theme. Oppressed peoples around the world have been empowered by the scriptural picture of a God who is angered by injustice and unrighteousness. You see what Rutledge is saying. She's saying it's actually oppressed peoples. It's the abused it's victims, it's the, it's the vulnerable of our society who need this truth. The reality is that if you are, if you're, if you're queasy, if you're, if you're uncomfortable with this idea of God's wrath, what it usually indicates is that it's saying something more about your position of power, your, your status, your social influence, your economic standing. Because as she says, oppressed people in the world do not find the idea of God's wrath against injustice a problem at all. In Martin Luther King Jr.'s autobiography, he wrote about an incident that occurred in his teenage years. He writes, when I was 14, I traveled from Atlanta to Dublin, Georgia with a dear teacher of mine, Mrs. Bradley, to participate in an oratorical contest. We were on a bus returning to Atlanta. Along the way, some white passengers boarded the bus and the white driver ordered us to get up and give the whites our seats. We didn't move quickly enough to suit him, so he began cursing us. I intended to stay right in that seat, but Mrs. Bradley urged me up, saying we had to obey the law. We stood up in the aisle for 90 miles to Atlanta. That night will never leave my memory. It was the angriest I have ever been in my life. That's righteous anger. It was channeled and transformed, as we now know, into the destructive energy that helped bring about civil rights in our country for the black community and for others. Let me suggest that you need, we need, our society, our, our neighborhoods, our world needs a God of anger and wrath and vengeance Miroslav Volf, who's a theologian at Yale University, um, in one of his most influential books, he writes this. He says, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance, God's wrath. My thesis will be unpopular with people in the West, 
But imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate. Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. And he says this, he, take, he says, it takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. What's the reason for our anger? It's rooted in God himself. We are made in his image with the capacity to release destructive energy to defend something good and destroy something evil. Now, because of sin, this capacity is bent and warped and crooked. But simply ignoring or suppressing it won't do. We need instead resources to transform it, resources to change it. So let's look at those resources, the resources in our anger. Let me point out just three resources that Psalm 109 offers us. First, this is an angry psalm. A resource that the Bible says, the Bible gives to us in our anger is be angry. Scripture actually commands you to be angry. There's a verse in Ephesians 4 where Paul says, be angry. Why? Because as we've seen, anger is rooted in God's holiness. Anger has a deep connection with God's justice. In fact, if there's an absence of appropriate outrage in the face of evil, that's an anger problem. Have you ever thought about that? That for, those, that for many of us, just the absence of appropriate anger in the face of evil is an anger problem. Share that with your therapist next week. See, God is furious at the vandalizing of his creation, and he has acted, and he has spoken and he will act to get it back. Be angry. Second, pray angry. Look, Psalm 109, people approach Psalm 109 as if the psalmist is spewing this language at another person. He is speaking to a person, but he's not speaking to anyone in the human community. He's not speaking to anyone in the village. He's not speaking to any one of his neighbors. He's speaking to God. This is prayer. The Bible invites you to pray angry. You see that in verse 1. This is directed to God. It's not directed against David's betrayer. And see, this is actually a step of faith. Praying angry, bringing your rage, bringing your fury, bringing your indignation to God is an act of deep-seated trust and faith. Just as Miroslav Volf said, you need a God who gets angry in whom you can entrust your rage. You can bring to him your fury. See, the path of prayer 
isn't to cover up all those emotions that we think aren't pious or aren't spiritual or aren't nice or Christian, but it's bringing it all to God. Late pastor and writer Eugene Peterson said this, it's an act of profound faith to entrust one's most precious hatreds to God, knowing they will be taken seriously. Hate, prayed, takes our lives to bedrock where the foundations of justice are being laid. Scripture gives you the resource to be angry, to pray angry, but also to limit your anger. See what the poet is doing. This is not some angry public Twitter thread or rant against David's foes. It's a conversation with God, the king of the world. David doesn't actually take vengeance into his own hands. But he turns this prayer and turns his anger and puts it in the hands of the king of the world. He places vengeance into the hands of God to whom it properly belongs. In fact, all the historical data we have from the Old Testament on David shows us time and time again that when David was given the opportunity to act against his enemies, he opted not to. He did not, he did not pursue violence, but instead he trusted God. We limit our anger by doing what Miroslav Volf and Martin Luther King Jr. did with their anger— we hand our vengeance over to God. That truth allows us to be people of nonviolence, to be angry righteously and not sin. Those are the resources that God gives us in the Bible in our anger. So in the remaining few minutes, what I want to do is I want, to, I want us to orient ourselves to Psalm 109. I want us to see the resolution that Psalm 109 offers David uh, in his anger. There's a couple things you need to notice that we need to see. First, you have to see that Psalm 109 is taking place in a judicial setting. This is a law court. You see that in verses 6 and 7, uh, where, where David says, Set a wicked person over him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. That's uh, the language of, of a prosecutor, of an attorney. The poet asks that his accuser be found guilty by the judge. There's this language woven all throughout the psalm of condemnation, uh, of, of, being, of not being found innocent, of being guilty, of paying for this person's crimes. See, even all the so-called curses in Psalm 109 are actually, what, they're actually, what they actually are, are just pleas that the court would act, that the judge would hand down a righteous sentence. This is a public trial. That's the first thing you need to see. Second, we need to understand the problem. What's going on? What is, uh, what's happening? What is, what is David being accused of? What is he accusing others of? The issue is really twofold. It's one... This accuser, or perhaps group of accusers, are false. They're lying. They are in an act of deep betrayal to David personally. And so not only is his reputation on the line, but his, uh, the status and the, 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 the kingdom itself, the stability and security of the kingdom is at risk. And you see that this dispute is, is intensely personal. 
This was someone, David says, who he knew intimately. In return for my love, they accuse me. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my love. This was somebody who was close to David, who betrayed him. He trusted this person, and they took advantage of him. But it's not just personal. It's also, it's also social. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, For he, that's the accuser, did not think to show kindness, but pursued the suffering, needy, and brokenhearted in order to put them to death. It's also social. There are social aspects of this. The betrayer did not show kindness to the suffering and the needy and the brokenhearted. That's the, that's the problem. That's what's going on. It's in a law court. It's a personal, it's a personal uh, uh, betrayal, active betrayal that also have so, has social consequences. The third thing you need to see, if we read the psalm in the context of the rest of Scripture, think about that for a moment. You need to read all of the psalms in the context of the rest of Scripture. How many times have you heard somebody say or you yourself have said, oh, you took my words out of context. We hate that. Don't do that to the Bible. Don't take its words out of context. You need to read it in the whole context of Scripture. And if you read the psalm in the context of the rest of Scripture, you see that that actually what David's doing is not just venting anger. He's not just spewing his language, uh, just whatever comes out of his heart. He's actually drawing on other parts of Scripture to help inform his own anger. He's helping it inform his perspective about what this betrayer deserves at the hands of justice. Listen to Exodus 22 in the context of thinking about the needy and the brokenhearted. Exodus 22 says this, No widow nor orphan shall you abuse. If you indeed abuse them, when they cry out to me, I will surely hear their outcry, and my wrath shall flare up, and I will kill you by the sword, and your wives shall be widows and your children orphans. See, what the poet is asking God to do is to stand by his word that he's revealed in Torah and the Pentateuch. He's asking for strict retributive justice. This betrayer has showed no kindness to the needy and orphans, so he's asking that his kids should become needy orphans. And before we hastily jump all over somebody like David, think about our own current penal system, what it does to convicted criminals and their families. Is Psalm 109 really that out of touch and archaic and barbaric? I don't think so. Far from venting and spewing rage, David is actually letting God's word inform and transform his anger. What do we do with that? It's, it's a law court, a deep act of betrayal, deep social abuse, and this psalmist asking for God's righteousness his justice. This weekend, a couple of us were at a conference down in San Diego called the Valued Conference, and it was a conference um, designed to speak and bring hope and healing to victims of sexual assault, 
And one of the speakers who was there was um, a woman by the name of Rachel Den Hollander. And she was, um, over the last couple of years, she has been uh, noted as one of the, 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 the primary people who is speaking out against sexual abusers and people who assault other people, both in the church and in our communities. Uh, she became well-known because she was the first person publicly to go on record in the case of Larry Nasser, who is now, uh, uh, at least on record, the, the, um, the worst serial abuser uh, in our nation's history. And at her victim impact statement at Larry Nasser's sentencing, this is, this, is, this is what she says. She's speaking to the judge. She's speaking to Larry Nasser. And she says, who is going to tell these little girls that what was done to them matters, that they are seen and valued, that they are not alone and they are not unprotected? And I could not do that, but we are here now and today that that message can be sent with the sentence you hand down. You can communicate to all these little girls and to every predator, to every little girl or young woman who is watching, how much a little girl is worth. I am asking that when we leave this courtroom, we leave knowing that when Larry was sexually aroused and gratified by our violation, when he enjoyed our suffering and took pleasure in our abuse, that it was evil and wrong. I ask that you hand down a sentence that tells us that what was done to us matters, that we are known, we are worth everything, worth the greatest protection the law can offer, the greatest measure of justice available. Where can you find a justice like that? Friends, you can only find it here in the Bible. You only find it in the, in the Christian scriptures, in a God who created justice, in a God who loves justice, in a God who's pursuing justice. But there's a deeper problem, and it's this. At the end of the day, we are all by nature's enemies of God, betrayers of God, traitors. We are all, we are all guilty of the worst kind of betrayal, a betrayal that's cosmic, not just the kind of betrayal that David experienced here in Psalm 109, but cosmic betrayal. Even at our best, our anger is twisted. That's why James says in the New Testament that the anger of people does not accomplish the rightness that God requires. So how does perfect rightness get accomplished? How can righteous anger be perfectly released to defend justice and attack and obliterate evil? Some of you are familiar, especially you parents, with C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. In the very first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a character, Edmund, who commits an act of betrayal. He's a traitor. And the, the witch, the white witch, Jadis, um, presents a case to Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure in the book, and she, she relies on this idea of the deep magic that was built into Narnia when Narnia was created. And the deep magic is this. It was entitled to kill every traitor. 
And if someone denied, um, denied uh, this, the witch her right, then all of Narnia would be overturned and perished in fire and water. But Aslan speaks about a deeper magic from before the, t- the dawn of time existed, which said that if a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, then death itself would start working backwards. Where is rightness, the justice that, that our anger properly communicated is really seeking? It happens at the cross. It happens when the, the God of perfect justice absorbs all the wrath, all of the anger against my evil, against my treachery, against my injustice, and he satisfies himself justice so that God can be both just and the justifier of whoever has faith in Jesus. See, what is the gospel in Psalm 109? It's this. It's that our human proclivity to curse, that in our human tendency to unrighteously and sinfully express our anger, God desires to bring blessing. Where there is condemnation and accusation, maybe you are experiencing that this morning, maybe there are voices around you that are are speaking to you condemnation and judgment and shame and guilt, and you're dealing with those regrets. God says, where they meant to curse you, I mean to bless. Where they mean to condemn you, I acquit you. I declare you righteous. I bless you. And it happens at the cross. It happens in the ugliest tragedy, the greatest injustice of all history. That is where God is dealing forever with our anger, with our sense of moral outrage the spot where all of human cursing is falling down on Jesus, that is where God is saying to you, I'm blessing you. I'm bringing acquittal. I'm bringing righteousness, the righteousness that your heart longs for, the righteousness that our world needs. That's good news, friends. We need that. Let's go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, you are God who gets angry at the vandalization of your creation, the vandalization of your image bearers. You are God who's created us with the capacity to be angry, to be outraged at injustice in our world, in our community, the things that we see around us. Father, transform inform through your scriptures and by your spirit our anger that we may that we may be angry and yet not sin and help us to look to Jesus the one who absorbed all of the anger against our evil all of the anger against our injustice on the cross and who has given us a way to hand vengeance over to you We thank you for him. He is beautiful. In his name we pray.
Amen. The Lord's Supper is a meal that Jesus instituted in the night in which he was betrayed. Think about that for a moment. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he instituted a meal in the presence, in the very presence of the people who would disown and betray him. Jesus gave a meal that said, I will give of myself. I will lay down my life for you. In the book of Acts, right at the beginning of Acts, the early church is, is forming. They're in between the time when Jesus has ascended and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And one of the texts, one of the passages of the Old Testament that they're reflecting on is Psalm 109, where in verse 8, the psalmist says, let his days be few, let another take over his position. And the apostles are reflecting on the reality that Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus, who gave him up to be crucified, had subsequently committed suicide. And they looked at passages like Psalm 109. They looked at Psalm 109 and said, this was speaking about Jesus. This was speaking about Jesus' own betrayal. And on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, my body is going to be torn apart for my enemies. That's what Paul said. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. This meal, which we practice here, which, Christ, which Christians all over the world have practiced for the last 2,000 years, says that there's one thing you need to know about who you are, and it's that you're guests. You are a guest at this table, which means you are both welcomed and you are wanted. You are welcomed to this table. God has welcomed you in Jesus Christ, and not only that, he wants you here. In the face of all our betrayal, of all our regrets, of all our secrets, of all of the ways that we betray Jesus, we all have this capacity. Judas wasn't some lone, horrible person. We all have that capacity in our hearts. And so Holy Communion is never a reward for our performance, for our righteousness. It's always a free gift. We need it. It's not because you should never stay away from this table because you are doing badly. You come to this meal because, not because you are full, but because you are hungry. Not because you are so right, but because you are so wrong. Not because you are put together, but because you're a mess. That's the invitation. The invitation to come broken, knowing that you are a guest who is both welcomed and wanted. On page 6, uh, you'll see uh, the Apostles' Creed there. This is the, 
This is the story of Christianity. And as we're reading over this, if this is something you believe, is if this is at the core of your being, not that you're perfect, not that you're put together, but that God has sent his son into the world to save sinners, if that's your heartbeat this morning, then you are welcomed and invited to this table. And if it's not, then embrace that reality. This is the only place at which you can find true justice. The longings of your heart are found here. So would you rise this morning, all of us together, and let's recite the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.